Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome back to Bloomsbury Radio. This is Yusuf Rafiq, and uh, today we have—I have two special guests with me here today from uh, the Bloomsbury Festival. I have with me Professor Shamian Brinson, who is the Emeritus Professor of German at Imperial College London, and she's also the found, founding member of the Research Center for German and Austrian Exile Studies at the Institute for Modern Languages Center. And along with Shamian, uh, today I have. Uh, with me, Dr. Claire George, who is an archivist at the Institute of Modern Languages in Senate House. Thank you, Shamian and Claire, for joining us today. Okay, thank you for inviting us. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. I yeah, hope you're doing well. And uh, it's going to be interesting. So we're going to be talking about uh, two events that are going to happen during the Bloomsbury Festival. I believe there's going to be a guided walk on the 20th of October that Claire will be leading. Uh, called on the Tra on the trail of aliens in the 1930s Bloom Bloomsbury. And then following that on Thursday, the 21st of October, there's going to be a talk by Charmian on called the number 12 Great Ormond Street, the mysterious case of Dora Fabian, Dora Fabian and Mathilda Worm. So yeah, it, it's going to be two back-to-back -back events and uh, a combination of walking through Bloomsbury and reliving history, but also learning about that part of history about the 1930s from you, Charmian. Uh, no, thank you. Thank you very much for this. And uh, I thought we'd begin this conversation by asking both of you about just your background so maybe it'll be nice if you know both of you could introduce yourselves to us maybe Shami and you can go ahead first okay well my name is Charmian Brinson and I, as you said I'm Emeritus Professor of German at Imperial College I've I've been there for many years in fact and I'm also more relevant in this case I'm also a not the founder member I should add but a founder member of the Research Center for German Austria and Exile Studies and this is within that context, the exile studies that this book and talk on are being arranged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, thank you. Thank you for that. Uh, Claire, do you want to go ahead? Yeah, um, so I'm, um, I'm a, an archivist, as you said, at uh, the Institute of Modern Languages Research. Um, my post is funded by the Martin Miller and Hannah Norbert Miller Trust. Mm -hmm. And uh, Martin Miller and Hannah Norbert Miller were themselves both um, exiles. They were Jewish and they were from Vienna mm -hmm. and um, they came to Britain in 1939 mm -hmm. um, and uh, they um, basically stayed um, in Britain after the war and they were mm -hmm. quite successful in, in British television and radio. And uh, their son, um, Daniel Miller, set up a trust um, together with the Research Centre for German and Austrian Exile Studies um, mm. to help fund research into exile studies. And, and one of the projects that that fund has, um, has funded has, mm. uh, was, was uh, an archivist post. So I was employed uh, in 2012 um, mm. to, um, as, that, as that archivist. And the first job I did was to uh, catalogue um, the archive of Martin Miller and, ha and Hannah Norbert Miller. Mm -hmm. And then I started to work on other archives of exiles. Um, and I worked very closely with the research centre, uh, and particularly Sharmin, on, on doing that. Okay. Very, very interesting backgrounds. Uh, I would be keen to know, and I'm sure the listeners as well on our radio uh, would be keen to know the story, both, both of your stories as to what uh, interested you in, in choosing your fields. So maybe Claire, you are wanting to become an archivist, of, you know, especially with regards to German and Austrian exile. Uh, yeah. Maybe you could begin, and then we'll go to Shanti. Yeah. Well, I um, I didn't go into archives until I was um, in my late thirties. So it it wasn't something that I'd always wanted to do, but I was I have always been very interested in in history. Um, mm. and, and actually German history in particular. I mean, I did my I did a degree and a PhD in, in German studies. Mm. Um, but um, I actually went and I trained as a teacher. I worked as a teacher for a few years. Uh, but then, um, yeah, I've, I've just felt that I wanted to get more involved in history. Mm. And um, and I, I worked for a while for um, the Royal Mail Archive. And I, I absolutely loved it. And I loved the way that... Um, the way that uh, archives allow you to sort of get back into um, these, you know, past lives and uncover the stories 
of of people that are you know otherwise long long forgotten and often find out stories which were never really intended to become you know well known or public um and i love the way that you can sort of put together stories by piecing together different records um, from different archives and so um when I had that first experience of that at, at the Royal Mail, I, I, I decided that was what I wanted to, to, to train as. Mm. Um, and then, um, yeah, I was lucky enough that uh, soon after I'd finished training as an archivist, that this post at the Institute um, came up. So mm. I went for it. So you, you, did you train as a general archivist? Yes, yes. Um, oh, yeah. and, then, and then you chose to be niche and specifically focus on... Uh, Jewish exiles from Germany and uh... yes I mean my background my my sort of academic background had been um, as I said was German studies so I had that sort of historical knowledge of of Germany mm. and um, well, central Central Europe uh, but um, training to be an archivist was an ent- you know in in a training sense was an entirely different uh, um, thing and and yes you you there are um, there are sort of set pathways for becoming an archivist. Mm. Um, and yes, it's a, it's a quite a general kind of um, subject. And yes, you specialize really once you're, once you're actually mm-hmm. in, in, a, in your professional job. Okay, fascinating, fascinating. And uh, yeah, Shamian, what about you? What is your story? Well, I studied German as well. Mm-hmm. Um, a BA and then an MA in German literature. Mm-hmm. But I was looking for a field uh, to research in that somehow combines, somehow had some sort of Anglo-German uh, features to it. And it seemed to me a very good idea for British Germanists to look at something like Germans in exile in Britain, because it combined the two things. I, like Claire, have always been very interested in history, and so this seemed like a very good good feel for me. As for finding the um, these two women, Dora Faber and Matilda Vorm, that was almost by chance that I came across that subject. I was reading some correspondence between different exiles in the 1930s, and I found that they referred to this case. For example, one called Rudolf Olden wrote and said, then we had the case uh, Fabian Vorm. And I had no idea what they were talking about, what this case was. Although everybody writing in 35, all these exiles writing in 1935, they all wrote about it. Mm. Yet nothing was ever said after that. And I looked at the British press for 1935 to see what they could be talking about. And it was a huge, it was a huge affair, the deaths of Dora Faber and Matilda Vaughan. It it made the front page of all the newspapers from the Times down to the to the Daily Mirror, that these two German women had been found dead in their flat in Great Ormond Street. Um, it was also at a time when there were rumors of, uh, of, of Gestapo in London, Gestapo activity in London. And many of the German exiles thought that this must be the work of the Gestapo in some way, because mm-hmm. I should say these two women had been had been very active anti-Nazis, mm-hmm. and uh, so would have attracted uh, probably would have attracted German attention. So that's how I discovered this, and so it was so interesting that it was such a big deal in 1935, mm-hmm. and then completely forgotten that I thought this is something I, I would like to look at. Wow! And what do you mean by Gestapo? Could you just elaborate a bit more on that? Ah, that's the German secret police, mm-hmm. um, who of course was set up uh, was set up in Germany, but there's quite a lot of evidence, not necessarily in this case, but quite mm-hmm. a lot of evidence that the Gestapo then was sent abroad. For example, <clears throat> the year before this this happened in Czechoslovakia, mm-hmm. um, a, a German professor, Professor Lessing, uh, Theodor Lessing, was shot through an open window. And that was definitely a, a Gestapo act. He'd been very anti-Nazi and mm-hmm. Gestapo had been told to, to put an end to him. And then the, the, big, the big thing in 1935, which is linked up actually with the death of the two women, was the case of a journalist, Bertolt Jakob, mm-hmm. who um, had left Germany in 32, actually, mm-hmm. as, as so many Germans did, to, to be out of Hitler Germany. And... Um, he, he was in France and he was lured from France to Switzerland by the offer of a new passport because mm. it was very difficult for, for exiles to have passports. So he was told if he came to Switzerland, he would be given a new passport. And in Switzerland, he was then kidnapped by the Gestapo and driven in a car over the border into Germany. 
So there was a lot of these things going on at that time. Mm-hmm. And it was sort of the time that the death of two women was another case of this sort. Mm-hmm. Uh, since you've already started mentioning about the 1930s, I think yeah, we can jump straight away into the topic. So it's it's set in the 1930s, right? And yes. I was wondering maybe if, uh, you know, both of you or maybe Shami, you could begin by explaining to us what was the situation like in the 1930s in Central Europe, in, in, in Germany, okay. Austria, yeah. Well, uh, we can leave Austria for a minute because that didn't, wasn't really involved as early as 35, well, not much anyway. Okay, um, okay. In 1933, Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany mm-hmm. and uh, immediately... Uh, took control of the parliament and so on. Uh, Freedom of speech ended and such like. And uh, it started really with persecution of political people. Mm. Um, Men and women who had been opposed to him, in particular members of the German Communist Party and the German Social Democratic Party, they were rounded up. In some cases, they were were sent to camps, Mm. the earliest of the concentration camps. Um, By about 1935, this persecution had spread from political uh, political people to Jewish people. Mm. Uh, and they also, persecution of them really started from 1935. And life became more and more difficult for opponents of Hitler, of course. And they began to leave Germany. And first of all, they took refuge in the countries around Germany with mm. the idea that they'd be able to get back again just over the border. So... They were to France and Czechoslovakia, and uh, yes, particularly those two. But uh, eventually, it became clear that uh, it wasn't going to be a short affair. The, the Hitler, the Hitler period, and more more permanent arrangements had to be made. So at that point, uh, exiles began coming to Britain as well. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you mentioned that. Uh, I think it began. Uh, I think the. Hitler and the Nazi regime began by targeting political opponents first and then moved on to the Jews as, as, an, opponent, yes. as an enemy. Okay, so it, was, it, it didn't start by directly targeting the Jews. Well, that's not quite true to say that because, of course, Hitler in his book Mein Kampf and so on had made mm-hmm. it quite clear that, uh, that he was opposed to the Jews and that Jews were, were obviously going to suffer in, uh, under him. But it's the, the men, mostly men, but the men and women who were first um, arrested and sent to camps were mostly the political uh, political opponents, although some of them were, were Jewish as well, of course. These groups are not mutually exclusive. Mm-hmm. Fascinating, yeah. yeah. And, 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 well, I was just going to add that, um, that there was legislation, uh, anti, anti-Jewish legislation was already passed in April 1933, Mm-hmm. Um, which um, which meant that uh, people with a Jewish heritage couldn't work um, in the civil service, in, in the universities and mm-hmm. so on. Um, and so, um, I mean, that was that that links in with you know, a particular group um, that um, we'll be looking at when we do the walk, because um, mm-hmm. uh because the universities here, there was some um, support from some academics working in universities here to try to to um, help academics who had been dismissed from their jobs in in Germany who were Jewish. Um, so that was the um, setting up of the uh, Academic Assistance Council mm-hmm. by William Beveridge, who was at, uh, mm-hmm. at the LSE. So um, and parts of the University of London, of course. Um, and so that's that sort of ties in with our walk. But that that was an example of where um, of, of you know there certainly were, was um, anti-Jewish uh, legislation mm. as early as thirty-three. So it began by banning the the nineteen thirty-three law, uh, made it difficult for the Jewish people to be in positions uh, in academia and government. Yeah. Yes. Yes, yes, and civil the civil service uh, as a as a whole, and that meant, and that in Germany that did also mean um, people who worked in um, universities. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, so okay again, again, it began by then restricting people's options to just being in business or doing regular work outside uh, of of the uh, established entities and organizations. 
yes i mean certain categories certain categories um i guess um people who were in uh well in german it's beamten um so it's people who are working in sort of um positions of responsibility within within the state um mm. and that yeah would, okay. would have included and and is it lecturers. okay okay and is it these people who then moved uh, outside as exiles and then came to the uk the the people who were supposed to be in civil services and as works uh, well well um some i would say early on only a very small number of those people uh, did but but one of the responses um by um as i said this particular academic william beveridge hmm. um at who was at lse which was part of the university of london um the response um it, from the universities was really um, initiated by him and mm. and that was the setting up of um an organization that would sort of try to help um academics jewish academics who had um, been dismissed from their posts um by setting up um the, the um, academic assistance council which um then um provided uh, you know small grants for people to travel to britain to um to do research um and to be sort of attached to british universities so i mean it, it i think initially it was on a very small scale but um but it did develop um it, and it, it's it's an organization that still exists today mm-hmm. but under a different name yeah the different name yeah. Oh, what is it called today? Well, it moved, it st- stopped being the Academic Assistance Council and became the SPSL, Society for the Protection of Science and Learning. But Claire's got a different name again now, has it? It escapes it, me. It has, and I will tell you what it is any second. <laughs> okay, because it would be quite interesting to know that this entity, entity yes. still exists with such a unique history. The Council for at- At-Risk Academics. Okay, Council for At-Risk Academics. Yes. Clara, yes. Oh, Clara, yes. Yeah. And, uh, okay, interesting. We heard about what it was like in the 1930s in, in, in Germany. Uh, but uh, yeah, could, could both of you also explain uh, to all of us what was the situation like in London and in the UK at the same time? Uh, well, yeah. life wasn't particularly easy in Britain in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, there, had been, there was, in fact, a lot of unemployment a lot of poverty. Um, on the whole, uh, people were not were not look, looking for, for, for migrants, not, not, not unlike today, really. Um, there was a certain hostility, in fact, to, uh, to the incoming German refugees. But on the other hand, there were people supporting them. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the, the British political parties were supporting them. There were men and women who particularly were particularly helpful to the German refugees. So, you know, there were advantages and disadvantages, really, to this situation. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, interesting. And uh, and Bloomsbury, right? Bloomsbury has has uh, is, is the topic of both of your events. Uh, what is so particular? What what is the situation in Bloomsbury at that time in the nineteen thirties? And why did the people who were able to leave Nazi Germany or Hitler's Germany, why did they choose uh, Bloomsbury? Well, I think there are two points to make here. And I should also say that Hampstead was very popular as well. Okay, but what we're looking at is, is Bloomsbury. Hmm. But one reason is that a number of the organisations that were assisting the refugees had their base in Bloomsbury. Hmm. And I think that attracted exiles who, who needed help and so on. They discovered where Bloomsbury was. But the other reason, which is hard to believe today, was that Bloomsbury was a very cheap place to live. Okay. It was, it was there were lots of rather rundown houses which you could you could rent a room. Hmm. And uh, obviously once you've got one person here, that then leads to the next and so on. So I think it's really those 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 two reasons. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, fascinating. Really mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I think I agree. Those are those are the two main um, reasons. Um, of course, coming to um, to sort of well make use of those organisations for most people would have been about coming and probably standing in a very long queue 
waiting for your turn to be um to be seen by somebody i mean um as as Charmin said there's, there there were quite a number of these organizations which just happened to have been based in 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 bloomsbury so you had um, the academic assistance council that i already mentioned they they were um in golden square from 1936 there was austrian self aid um, in 1938, there was um, the two main um, sort of um, well, yeah, uh, the the main the main building that refugees would go to during the war was uh, was Bloomsbury House, which is on uh, Bloomsbury Street, Street, and that was um, that really housed a, a lot of other uh, smaller. It was the sort of headquarters for all the, the smaller charities and groups that have been that had been set up. Um, to support different groups of um, refugees. Um, so you had in there the, the Jewish Refugees Committee, you had um, the Germany Emergency Committee, um, uh, you had, I think it was a musicians group, um, you had also the group um, which, um, the organisation which um, organised the uh, Kindertransport, which um, you may, uh, may have, your listeners may have heard of, which was... Um, an arrangement to bring um, un unaccompanied uh, children over um, from uh, Germany and Austria and uh, Czechoslovakia. Um, that was just in the last year before the before the war, and there were about ten thousand um, of those children who came. Mm -hmm. um, so that was all organised from Bloom Bloomsbury House, um, and you also had. Uh, Woburn House, um, which was the Jewish uh, was a uh, Jewish communal community centre. Um, so you had um, from early 1933 onwards, you had the Jewish Refugee Committee based there, and so lots of lots of Jewish people would go there. Um, mm. But a lot of those of what they were doing in Bloomsbury there was was really just going for um, you know they could they would go they'd they'd get help with. Um, if they were lucky, they'd get help with housing, with perhaps mm. with clothing, sometimes with um, food, um, and then advice on on employment and those kinds of things. So those, I guess, you'd say that they were they were people who'd come. Mm. They would come for the day. I don't mean to say that they'd only come once, but they would come and then they would be going elsewhere to, to mostly mm. to stay. But in addition to those people, you had people, as Jarmin said, you'd have people who were living here in the very cheap boarding houses. Um, but you also had um, uh, people coming um, to work. You know, you had uh, lots of the university buildings, um, of course, were, were around here at that time already. Mm. Um, Senate House was just being being built. Um, I think it had its it had one um, academic term. Um, or one year, academic year, I should say, 1938-39, before the war uh, broke out. And mm. then all those colleges, uh, uh, well, all, all uh, the university parts were, were mostly evacuate, evacuated. Um, and then um, you had the Ministry of Information was based in Senate House. Mm. And there were quite a few refugees um, who um, were commissioned to work uh, for the Ministry of Information. So there were lots of organizations based in Bloomsbury which for one reason or another um, brought uh, refugees to to the district mm -hmm. very interesting and uh, I'm just curious to know then uh, the 1930s early 1930s and mid 1930s was when um, Jewish exiles started coming into the UK but was there already a pre-existing Jewish community uh, before to receive yes. and help them or it was a completely new community in a new place where there were no synagogues and you know, no people of their own no there was a jewish community you can talk about the anglo-jewish community that was the mm. established established british jewish community mm -hmm. but there had also been pre previous waves of migration around the turn of the century from russia from poland and so on on the whole those people were still living in the east end um, mm -hmm. at that time uh, whereas the Anglo-Jewish community tended to have moved out from the East End and lived in, in what you might call better parts of parts of London. So yes, it did exist, but there was a certain nervousness um, in the Anglo-Jewish community mm. that, that if too many if too many Jewish refugees arrived, 
this would in some way expose them to the British pub, pub, public. They, they were nervous anyway about a, a large number of, of Jewish immigrants arriving. Okay, because if there, are, if there is a significant group, then the spotlight would be on them. Exactly. Oh, yeah. and they, they didn't want that unnecessary attention or spotlight. Now, of course, it didn't apply to everyone. And within the Anglo-Jewish community, there were, there were a number of, of people who were philanthropists, people who were very helpful to the incoming Jews. But the, the Jewish community as a whole, there was definitely this slight nervousness, mm. as you said, because they didn't want the spotlight put on them. Mm. I mean, there was a lot of anti-Semitism in Britain still. Well, maybe, oh, yeah. no, but anyway, then certainly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I mentioned the Woburn House. Um, so um, that was a community, that was a, one of the main Jewish community um, centres that mm -hmm. I think is only just written, only shortly before being, being um, established. But it then when, when the, they realised the need to set up, um, you know, a support for refugees coming, that was, that became um, the, the main place where um, support for, ref for Jewish refugees was organised. From, and that was by the Anglo-Jewish community. Hmm. Very interesting. Um, uh, I have two uh, questions in mind, and I don't know. I mean, maybe let me begin by this. Uh, so you talked about how in the beginning, uh, Shamian, that, okay, there are two main characters in your talk. There's uh, Dora Fabian and Matilda Worm, and yes. they were uh, exiles, and they came here, and they were young, and they were... No, they weren't young. Dora Fabian was young. Matilda Vaughan was much older. Okay. Um, although they, they were quite good friends and had been friendly in Germany as well. Mm -hmm. uh, they were both Jew Jewish, mm. but they were not practicing Jews. And mm. the, reason, the reason that they felt persecuted was not so much their Jewishness, but their political activities. Matilda Vaughan mm. had been a, a social democratic member of parliament, mm. one of the first women, in fact, to go into parliament in, in Germany. Mm -hmm. uh, she was a member of the Social Democratic Party. And Dora Fabian, who was a good bit younger, was a member of a slightly more rad radical uh, group than that, the what was then called the Socialist Workers' Party, the mm -hmm. SAP. And they both left because they were endangered um, because of their political activities. Okay, In fact, yeah. the, mm -hmm. Matilda Vaughan left at a point when the Social Democrats, Social Democratic MPs were rounded up in, in the German parliament. And she they knew this was going to happen mm. and she left just before that. She had a, a, a sister in Switzerland mm. and she was his sister to start with. Uh, so anyway, they came to Britain and uh, Dora arrived first mm. and then, then Matilda and they decided they would find a place to live together and they lived in two or three different houses but the last one of course was the one in Great Ormond Street and always in around the Brinsby area. That was mm. where they lived. Interesting, uh, because because yeah, now the second question is related to this. So, at this time in Bloomsbury, and then you shed light on this. Okay, there were Jewish exiles, there were political exiles who were who had a Jewish identity, and then supposedly you know there was the Gestapo, and then there are so many different kinds of people. And my question is on trust. Yes. What was it like in terms of trust in Bloomsbury? Because okay, you had these the Anglo Jewish people who were coming to support the people, but then you had the Ministry of Information, which is also housed there. That wasn't then. The Ministry okay. of Information didn't really get going until the war. But so okay. we're talking about the pre-war period. Okay, the pre-war uh, period, yeah. Yes, yeah. yes. Um, well, there was a lot of suspicion. One mm. lot of refugees were very suspicious, another lot of refugees. There mm. were informers. It was known there were informers among the Jewish refugees. Mm. And in particular, there was a man called Hans Wiesemann, who had come as a social dem democrat, but quickly changed his mind and decided to be an informer, both to the British, but also to the German embassy. Oh, wow. And he was suspected because he had rather more money than, than other refugees. He was suspected of, of, of leading some sort of double existence. And indeed, he, he was definitely involved with the uh, kidnapping of Bertolt Jacob from France that I talked about. Mm. And there were a number of these rather suspicious characters who either correctly or incorrect or falsely, were suspected by another group of, of refugees. Does that answer your question? 
yeah, yeah. It, it, it just shed some light on how the situation was at that time because I was just trying uh, to shed some light on what it would have been like at that time. So if I'm a local and I'm staying in Bloomsbury and I see a group coming and ostensibly you know, they're refugees, so they might need help. But then how do I discern how much of help to give, how much to open up? Because I'm not sure as well what I'm seeing or expecting. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's a good point. There were a number of episodes that made the exiles terribly suspicious. I mentioned one or two of them. But for example, in the British Museum, which housed the British Library in those days, of course, mm-hmm. a number of the academic refugees would go and work in the in the British Museum. And it was said that work that was left on the desk in one or two cases was 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 taken while the while the author of this work was was out, out of the room. Um, Mm. There were a number of cases like that where, where people's work disappeared. And it is also known that someone like Hans Wesermann would go to the German embassy and report, report on what, what these other refugees were working. There was one called uh, Otto lehmann Rusbold, for example, mm. who uh, was working on Germany's air force. Uh, Germany was not supposed to have an air force after the First World War. That was, mm. uh, that was laid down in the Treaty of Versailles. But in one way and another, they were building up an air force. And Otto Lehmann-Wussbold, who was not Jewish, incidentally, he was a political refugee, he, he, he wrote about this, he reported on it. And he was obviously a target. He, he was probably quite lucky that nothing worse happened to him. Certainly in his, in his house, some of his work was removed, some of his papers were removed. Mm-hmm. That happened quite often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So... This was the pre-war period, and then 1939 yes, yes. was yes. when... Yeah, no, it's entirely... And really, it's a yeah. period... Hmm. From, we're talking about the period from 33 to about 38. 38, yeah. Yes. Because maybe then post-38, 39, uh, the situation would have changed. Well, been, yeah. from 1938, there's a numbers of refugees arriving. Hmm. It was far greater. Um, hmm. the, uh, the Germans had marched into, <clears throat> into, into Austria. Hmm. And uh, it became quite clear that there was going to be persecution of the Jewish population in Austria. So very large numbers of Austrians came after that. And mm-hmm. similarly in Czechoslovakia, the bits of Czechoslovakia that was, uh, that was occupied by the Germans, similar situation there. Um, mm-hmm. A lot of social Democrats left at that point, mm-hmm. but also the Jewish, the Jewish population. So it's a slightly different situation from from 38. I think it's also quite clear that war is coming at that point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, very fascinating. And uh, maybe just to give a glimpse, but not too much, just, uh, oh, you've already done that, but I was yeah thinking on the two characters of, of your talk yes. about Dora Fabian. And uh, I don't know, do you, do you want to maybe tell us a bit about how, why, uh, they might have been murdered in London when they had already escaped, you know, Hitler's Germany. Well, it was thought that they might have been murdered because of these other incidents that have been going on elsewhere. Mm. In particular, it was known that Dora Farben was very active, actively working against Hitler. Mm. Um, so that was the reason they thought, they thought they could have been murdered. There mm. have been also a couple of incidents where their rooms were, were burgled before they, they before they died, obviously. Um, in fact, in one case, they just moved into a new a new flat, and and the rooms were burgled, and all that were taken were their pe- papers. Mm. Nothing in any, any value was taken. So it, that, that that was what was suspected that was happening. I myself, having looked at the whole case, I don't actually think they were murdered. But the mm. interesting thing is that. that the refugee population as a whole were convinced that they were murdered. Mm-hmm. Very interesting, very interesting. And uh, just, just also very curiously, uh, Claire, moving on to you, uh, you've named your walking tour as On the Trail of Aliens. I'm just, uh, I don't know, in my mind that came up, why the word aliens? I'm just curious to know. Um, well, I, the word aliens was, was a legal, legal term to, to describe um uh people who were uh you know foreign um and um uh there were um i think this was as a result of legislation from the first world war um Mm. 
and it meant that uh, that you know within a sort of uh, a national within the national sort of legal framework those people were just did not have any um, protection or rights I mean there, there wasn't any kind of international um, legislation um, protecting refugees of course um, so when people um, you know refugees arrived from from Germany and then later from Austria those people were uh, were treated as aliens I mean they were you know outside they didn't mm. have the, the the same rights as as British citizens mm. um, I mean that then led on to um, uh, during the war um, when the threat of invasion um, seemed at um, at its highest so that mm. was in in the summer spring summer of 19, uh, 1940 um, uh, those those uh, many of the uh, of the refugees were interned um you know they mm. were they were um about i think it was roughly 30,000 of them uh, were interned um as enemy aliens mm. um or you know in various camps particularly on the isle of man um so it yeah so it, it's a sort of a reference to to their legal status wow okay and uh, so the, so that means there was no concept of asylum seekers back then no, no, no. Um, I mean, I, when um, when the refugees uh, were uh, arrived, they would have to register with uh, a um, with the police. Um, and then when the war broke out, they were they because those people who were come, who had come from Germany and Austria were were um, classified as enemy aliens, mm. and they all had to go to a tribunal, um, and. Um, in some cases, they were, uh, if they were lucky, the, the tribunal would, would find um, that they were uh, refugees and they, they would mark them down as being refugees, but it wasn't really a legal, it wasn't really a defined legal status. Mm -hmm. um, and many of those people were still interned. Um, wow. So, um, yeah. So, that, so, so, so in a way, thinking from the perspective of... Uh, a Jew from Germany or Austria was effectively, okay, especially from Germany, it was effectively like going from one place where there's a lot of uh, backlash towards your community to another place where there's a lot of uncertainty and also no trust. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So it's not like the UK also was a safe space for them or comfortable no. space. Yeah. No, by by no means. I mean, you know, the, the conditions on, on um, under which they were allowed to actually come, mm -hmm. they were very, very restricted. So, I mean, for instance, people had to prove that they were able to um, support themselves financially. Um, and and as, a, as a result of that, you had, um, you had, if you were lucky, you would find through one of the refugee organisations, you would find a British citizen who was willing to um, say that, you, that they would support you for, for your time here. But... Um, the other part of, of that was that um, people generally were not allowed, refugees were generally not allowed to work. So they mm. couldn't, um, so if you were somebody, you know, without very much money, um, there's no way that you would be able to um, just simply come and prove uh, and, and live here without having, a con without having uh, you know, a contact that said that they would support you. I mean, people would, there were certain professions that, or, or sectors that uh, where refugees were able more e more easily able to to work and one of those was um working in uh, domestic service mm. so quite a lot of women came um uh you know generally people who women who had no experience previous experience of working mm. in a domestic uh, service but that was the one job that they could actually they were allowed to um take up mm -hmm. And uh, you mentioned that uh, I think it was required for them to financially sustain themselves. Mm. So does this mean, did this mean that the people who are able to leave Germany, the Jew, Jewish people, they were uh, from a higher social economic class because they had more money or there were people from across classes? Well, um, I mean, certainly if you had more money, if you had money, you would be in a better position to be able to 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 prove to the British authorities that you would be able to mm. um, support yourself, but I mean this would 
but without being able to work that would obviously yeah. uh, rule out a vast majority of people but I, in the I, jewish uh, people yeah go ahead, go ahead. Uh, i should say that uh, this all changed by about 941 mm. when the need for for workers was great people mm. working for the war effort and not only were people were refugees then allowed to work, but they were actually to work. They were encouraged to work, and it got mm -hmm. to a stage where they had to work in most cases. Mm -hmm. As, so obviously, the situation did change by that time. Mm -hmm. And and so that means, especially by 1941, there were all kinds of refugees. There were refugees who were professionals back in Germany, yes. who were teachers, and also those who were working class. Yes, but of course, oh, yeah. the ones who were who were teachers in Germany didn't necessarily mean they could teach in Britain. Um, okay. okay. Legal profession was particularly badly hit because mm. the legal system in Germany was quite different from the from the British legal system. It was very difficult for them to find a post. Doctors did slightly better, but even they were restricted to start with. Mm. Um, only as the war went on were were refugee doctors permitted to work in some circumstances as doctors. Mm -hmm. or within the refugee community they could also do that mm. very interesting uh moving on to like the third and, and final part i was uh you're wondering if both of you could you know just shed light on what is the relevance of of this whole interwar period focus and topic for people today you know they are the, the people in bloomsbury with the students that the people are living here you know why should they even be interested in knowing more about this period. I mean, well, okay, go on. Well, I, I was going to say that, of course, you know, well, I think Chandra mentioned 80,000 80, rough, roughly refugees at, at, at that time. Um, and by the end of the Second World War, I think there were, I think around 11 million people had been displaced. But now, I mean, last year, um, I think the numbers of people in the world who have been displaced from their home countries was something around 80, 80 million or more. I mean, it is a, wow. it's a, you know, it, when you think of the scale of this problem nowadays, mm. um, you know, it, it, it is no longer really in, in terms of world population, it's no longer a minority experience. It's, mm. it's something which is, which, uh, is an experience by a large number of the of you know present population, and for that reason alone, you know it, it's got to be something that you know we look at how how societies have dealt with um, outsiders um, in the past, um, how governments have uh, have managed those problems, um, you know how legislation has developed as a result of of of, um, of those events. And that's got to be something that is, that helps us to think about how we manage those those issues today, um, and particularly, of course, in sort of the, you know current political situation of um, you know rise of right wing politics and uh, you know increasing racism, and then how we treat outsiders um, is is got to be a some, something that we should, we've got to look at them from a historical point of view and try and learn those lessons. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, I agree with Claire. It does uh, shine a light on the way that refugees, uh, that foreigners are dealt with here. In some ways, despite the fact that all these difficulties in the 1930s, I think the 1930s refugees had an easier time of, of integrating into the British community than possibly refugees today. Wow. Why would you say that? Well, partly for the reason that you said yourself, they were middle class, they were white and middle class. Mm. Um, it was easier for them to integrate into the, their native population. They had professions and so on. They were well educated on the whole. Mm. These, these things don't necessarily apply to, to, to migration today, although they may do, of course. Mm -hmm. It's also a question of appearance. Um, the Refugees, especially those who were not practicing Jews, as a great many were not, they didn't look much different from the from the native population. They didn't stand out. Mm -hmm. Whereas that, of course, is not true of refugees today. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Uh, yeah, because clearly uh, 
the physical features would 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 make a difference as to how you're perceived yes but i was also thinking you know we we spoke about how uh they had to be in interned in uh, 80000 of them had to be interned yes. in isle of man no no it wasn't 80000 about that's 30 oh sorry sorry 30000 yeah 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 and yeah. that is also very bad but now at least officially or legally there's no kind of internment that refugees from syria or iraq or afghanistan have to face people from there right now uh so from that perspective we could say it's better right and and they're being accepted uh in a better manner what do you say correct <laughs> yeah i don't know i just feel like being the devil's advocate and saying what you're saying well i wouldn't say this it's not my area of um, expertise but um I mean first of all they weren't they were they were interned when um in war in the war conditions and it was it was mm. at the point when when it was expected that um there would be an invasion but um I yeah okay they they, they weren't they weren't interned but um I don't know that the systems for actually dealing with um for dealing you know for for helping people to to migrate are they are they actually adequate enough for you know for the for the numbers of people that are that that need to um you know flee their homes from you know all the war and um other other problems that they need to, to that force them to leave their countries I, i'm not sure that um I'm not sh- I'm just not sure about making that com- comparison of saying you know that that um mm-hmm. that because they're not in because they're no longer in term in turn um that it's necessarily uh, that they have it just as that they have it better I would, I think probably I, if anything I would agree with Charmian that uh, certain other factors may have made it easier for those earlier mm-hmm. generations mm-hmm. yeah no indeed uh like one one final question which i'm also very keen to hear both your thoughts on how as to how yeah we we spoke about how in in the mid mid 30s there was a, there was there was a lot of societies and organization set up the uh, play you told us about william beveridge and and these people who made it easier relatively easier for people to to come to the uk and uh, that was the role that you know bloomsbury and and london played in the 1930s what do, what do you think is the role today in 2021 that bloomsbury and you know the same city of london what role can it play now given the circumstance and the situation of the world we have right now well bloomsbury is obviously still a university center hmm. so i would imagine that uh, the academic migrant academic refugees would still find help here Claire, are, are the same number of, of refugee organisations in Bloomsbury now? I think not. Not as far as I know. No. no. But what I, one thing that Bloomsbury does have, of course, is a lot of libraries, archives, um, galleries, uh, museums, and and I think that as sort of repositories of in whatever format records of the past that they. they have a role in in kind of you know educating us about about those past lives and or allowing us to access and and find out about those about those past lives i mean there are two actually there are two immediate um examples that i can think of that relate to um our particular subject area which of course is the the vena library um which uh you know holds the well one of the world's most important collections of of archives of uh the holocaust and and jewish life in in germany and central europe and then there's also the warburg which was itself a um you know an an exile um library um that came from hamburg in in the 1930s um so you know though they're just a couple of examples as well of course as as our own here our archives here Uh, at the university of how um these um cultural organizations um can actually help us kind of get that window onto the past 
Mm-hmm. Indeed, indeed, very fascinating. Yeah, uh, yeah. Maybe the last question I'll leave you both with is: What uh, would you want to tell the listeners about what they can expect from the walking tour and the event uh, that's coming up literally in, uh, in the next week? Well, as far as as go, oh, sorry, go on. No, no, you talk about the walk. That's uh... okay. Well, I mean, as far as the walk is concerned, people can uh, will hopefully learn something about uh, local history in Bloomsbury. Um, they will find out, as I've mentioned, about those uh, some of the collections in in these museums and archives that uh, that you know are so important to Bloomsbury. Um, they'll find they'll probably see hopefully see new bits of um, Bloomsbury that they haven't explored before. So um, when I have done the walk before, people afterwards have said, uh, I, I didn't realise, I didn't know this bit of Bloomsbury was here. So, um, so uh, yeah, those are, the, those are the points that you'd get from my walk. Okay, and as for the talk, well, I think the, the, the story of these two, two women and the reaction of the refugee population and indeed the British population to these deaths, which I don't think incidentally were murder, I think they did commit suicide, but the reaction was one of panic. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether what we quite learned from that, I don't know, but undoubtedly there are similar situations happening today. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Very interesting. Uh, thank you so much, uh, both Shamian and Claire. And just for our listeners, once again, uh, th- these two events will be a part of Bloomsbury Festival. The festival uh, is starting on Friday, 15th of October. And uh, the walk that Claire will be leading will be on Wednesday, the 20th of October uh, at 3.30 p.m. starting from Senate House. It's called On the Trail of Aliens in the 1930- in 1930s Bloomsbury. Uh, the, the talk that Shamian will give will be on Thursday, 21st of October, titled Number 12, Great Ormond Street, The Mysterious Case of Dora Fabian and, and, and Mathilda Worm. Both of these events, uh, you could get more information and register on the Bloomsbury Festival website, which is bloomsburyfestival.org.uk. Thank you very much, uh, all of you, and have a good day.